so when we arrived, I shouldn't say that we are not very welcome, but <laughs> we are not so very welcome. And when I arrived, it was only one woman. It was Elizabeth Palm from Sweden. But we arrived eight of us, which was a little bit better. But then the the number was growing, and so it was easier. It was easier. These words describe Lady Francoise Tolkien's experience on that fateful day in November 1998, when she became a judge of the European Court of Human Rights, accompanied by only one other woman. As Tolkien's goes on to say, that number gradually rose, and with 15 female judges serving on the European Court of Human Rights in 2021, improvements are visible. But these changes came after the experience of some pioneers, like Tolkien's herself. On this episode of Women in International Justice, Françoise Tolkien's discusses these experiences with professors Andrew Clapham and Neus Torbisco Casals. Looking at your background, we see that you earn a degree in criminology and a doctorate in law at the Catholic University of Louvain. And except for a short period of practicing law, you were appointed a professor and then pursued an academic career before becoming a judge at the European Court of Human Rights. We wonder how was to be a woman, a student, and then a young academic in the 60s and 70s in Europe, and whether there were some particular woman or legal personality that maybe had an influence as a role model or, you know, uh, or shape the direction of your career? Back a long time ago now. <laughs> I have to refresh my memory from that time. Yes, at that time, we were not so many women at university, not at all. Girls and boys, we were divided. We were divided. The boys were in one part of the, the room and the girls were the other part. No, it was not so easy. So we were 10 or 25 out of 300. And we said, what are we doing there? Why do you do that? To, yes, you are there to look for a husband. No, 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 no. I should say it was difficult and not difficult. Difficult because uh, nobody take care of you. You were really not personal non grata, but we were there as an accident. Really as an accident. Voilà, alors there are of course some people during my study that play an important role. I was coming from the University of Louvain and there it was, I don't know if you know this professor, his name was François Rigaud. And you know, at that time he was able to teach at the same time family law and international law. For me, it was fascinating because in family law and even in a Catholic university, he starts saying that we have to try marriage before getting married. Of course, he was explaining that in a very scientific way, but he was really progressive, really uh, having a look to the future. He was so intelligent. Really, I, I love this teacher. I love, and when I finished my study there, I went to see him and I said, well, I would be interested being an assistant university. He said, excellent idea. And the day after it was done, you know. So Rigo really plays an important role in in the way he was uh, reconciling scientific uh, approach and very uh, engaged, how do you say, very involved in, in the reality. He was an old conseiller de cour de cassation, a old magistrate. I love him. Why? Because all the time he, he said to me, I don't understand you, but I will support you. And when I started being a, a defense lawyer, I was very impressed by uh, Another woman lawyer, and her, her name is Eliane Vogel-Polsky. Uh, and she was really fascinating because I was a long, lo young lawyer. 
and she explained to us the strike of women in a big factory of arms. It was called the Fabrique Nationale d'Armes de Guerre. And she explained to us how these women were there working as slaves, as slaves in a situation that was unbelievable. And she was paid, of course, a different salary from, for men. And then to starting this movement for equality, uh, equality in salary to equal work, equal salary. And I was really impressed by uh, Eliane Begelkowski. Fantastic. My question relates to why, what made you get interested in human rights and think that it might be interesting to apply to become a judge at the European Court of Human Rights? The, my relation, I should say, with human rights is very, it's coming back from the end of the 60s when I had to choose my study for the university. And at that time, I had the opportunity to, to attend some conference given by defense lawyer for the people of the FLN. I was a teenager at that time. He came in Belgium to explain that they were tortured in Algeria. People say, no, come on, you're exaggerating. It's not true. Yes, yes, they explained to us. Uh, I couldn't imagine that. And then I say, okay, because I was willing to study history or physical, oh, I don't remember. And then I say, no, no, I will turn to law and I want to be a defense lawyer. From this very beginning, for me, human rights and law are two, two, two allies, two allies, two companions. And you cannot divide one from the other. And what made you think about the Strasbourg court and that you would like to be a judge there? Ah, you know, I didn't think about that. I was interested in, in the court, of course. I was interested as all, because in criminal law, you are, of course, interested in what the court is. But I never, never, never imagined that I will be a judge there. It was not a plan de carrière, as we say. But, you know, in Belgium in 1997, it was a, such a turmoil with the Dutroux case and so on and so on. So uh, the government decided to be a little bit more transparent. And then for the first time, first time in the history of the court, it was an advertisement in a official gazette. They say there is a post vacancy at the European Court of Human Rights. Oh, I will apply. You know, for a woman, you cannot wait until people ask you to do something. Then you ask, you, you are waiting all your life. Do you think that feeling's changed over time? Do you think it's easier these days for the, the women judges there? So when we arrived, I shouldn't say that we are not very welcome, but <laughs> we are not so very welcome. Not at all. Not at all. People say, uh, you know, especially people colleagues from the old court. Say, what, what are you doing here? Voilà. A little bit that, you know, exactly the same job as you. What else can I say? To be a judge as you? We, we wanted to go back to the lecture series that you inaugurated. We dedicated the series to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, famously, she said this. People ask me sometimes, when will, will there be enough women on the court? And my answer is, when there are nine. I love it. I know I repeat it all the time. All the time, you know, instead of going in depth, quota, not quota. No, 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 nine. Let's go. I was really moved when I read that, uh, that you dedicate the lesson to her, because uh, when I was at the court, we contacted with the U.S. Supreme Court. So I was happy to be among the delegation. So we went there and we had a discussion with her. So I met Ruth Ginsburg there. She was a small porcelain. She was a very small woman. But her story is really fascinating. Huh? So to see Ruth Ginsburg there in the Supreme Court itself, that was really a, a very important memory. 
So I don't know how you explain the persistence, you know, after all this time. There are even more women who study law than men, in fact. In many, at, at least in my experience I, I, here in Barcelona, we have the consolidation of women's rights and women's activism, and women are still excluded from institutions, global institutions, like, like the international judiciary. In order to acclimatize, to reconcile, you know, you have to change the culture. So it, it takes time, it takes, I should say, not only months, years, decades, and a little bit generation as well. We are not close to equality and parity. And I should say even the contrary. Yes, there are more women now. There are women in the judiciary, not in the international jurisdiction. When I applied in 1998, I was the only woman who applied. When I left in 2012, Belgium explained that it was exceptional circumstances, you know, the usual excuse, and Belgium presented an all-male list in 2012. And you know, it was, and then an excellent woman applied, excellent. She's the best woman in human rights in Belgium. No, she was not put on the shortlist. So uh, that's why we have to continue to fight. We have to continue you know, but still you can, you know, if you describe yourself as a feminist judge, this still evokes in people's minds this type of, you know, suspicion. Yes, I, I, I know what you mean. But this argument saying that if more women are on the, if women are on the bench, the risk is to lose impartiality. That, for me, is completely no sense. Typical machist argument. Because... Either we are all impartial or we are all not. Very often some judge, some colleague uh, during the deliberation say to women, not to men, oh, don't be too emotional. Men are as emotional as we are. Or on, on, on different topics. No, the argument impartiality for me is a very, very dangerous argument because it looks like a serious one or it isn't. So, I mean, as you know, in the International Criminal Court, they have rules that there have to be a certain number of women judges. I mean, or is that specific to the type of court that maybe is dealing with sexual violence? What are your thoughts? My thoughts about that is a, is a, a little bit challenging. Of course, on the pure intellectual aspect, quotas is not a good thing, that's for sure. But no, I realize that if really we want to achieve equality and parity, sometimes we should put something more solid in place. I think it's important. We, we cannot wait anymore. We cannot wait anymore. So in against this background, I think it's important to have rule which try to, to fill this gap. And I think for international judiciary is the same. It's absolutely the same because all the arguments, I mean, now we know by heart the argument, the question of the women are not competent, oh my God, forget about that. Men are not competent neither. I think it's important to say, no, it's so. We have to do it. We have to do that and we have to adopt some rule to, to achieve that. Yeah. No, thank you. And then switching topics and taking you back to 2005 and the Sahin case and that uh, famous dissent which put women's voices at the centre of the court's and I don't know if you remember, but at the time you gave the lecture for us, it was just the week when Switzerland was voting to ban face coverings, otherwise known as the burqa ban. 
Right, a day after International Women's Day, and on Sunday, Switzerland took a landmark decision to officially ban the burqa and the niqab. A proposal to outlaw the traditional Islamic garment was narrowly backed in a nationwide referendum with 51% of Swiss supporting the ban. It's all presented as a question of security. It's about Islam more generally towards society. And I wondered if you'd had any thoughts about this rather, if I might say, strange uh, manoeuvre now in Switzerland to introduce legislation in the constitution. I, I haven't had my mind eh? If Shaheen was today, I would have taken exactly the same position, exactly. And now there is a kind of a myth that with a legislation, we'll ban that, everything will be solved. That's an illusion. Because the question of the veil is a question, first of all, against Islam, that's for sure. We, we, of course, we have to say, no, 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 it's neutrality. It's, uh, in France, they are speaking about uh, laicity, laicity. In Belgium, we are talking about neutrality. I don't know which, what do you use as a name in, in Geneva? No, 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 no. It's a question of people are free to behave as they want to. To ban the veil, it's really, it's a one constraint against another one. Voilà. That's exactly that. With the legislation, it will be clear. No, it will be unclear. But it's difficult to, to convey this message. Switching to the question of many people see now as that there is a backlash against international courts, international adjudication, human rights. To which extent do you think that there is a future in international adjudication? It's a very, very critical question and very important question because there is a backlash as for sure. There is a backlash not only for court but for human rights which is of course more important. People do not believe in human rights anymore. Alors, is it the reality, or is it a kind of reconstruction of the reality by some politician? That's for me to be seen, because uh, when we are discussing with people, you don't hear the same discourse, not at all. They took our sovereignty, our dignity, the very essence of our Britishness. And what has the European Convention of Human Rights ever done for us in return? Apart from the right to a fair trial, the right to privacy, freedom of religion, freedom of expression, freedom from discrimination, freedom from slavery, and freedom from torture. And degrading treatment. And degrading treatment. I do hope there is a future for international jurisdiction. That's for me really, it's more than a question mark, it's really an existential question for me. Because I have no insight or I have no idea how to... Uh, rethink the international jurisdiction. When I was at the court, it was, we discussed reform from 1998 to 2012. When I left the court, we were already discussing about reform. Reform, reform, reform. Reform to what? To have subsidiarity in the preamble, as we will have in a few weeks. To have margin of appreciation in the preamble. We cannot say that it's a new vision of supranational court uh, for the future. It's just to say, no, no, margin of appreciation. Uh, but today, Today, it was a judgment against Italy concerning sexual violence in the family. Because this judgment is absolutely extraordinary because it expressed a really a feminist point of view. Italy, GL against Italy. Have a look on that. Have a look on that. So you have, now I see that some people say that's exaggerated because this judgment is very, very strong against the Court of Appeal in Italy saying you use stereotypes of being through men uh, saying that. I haven't seen such a strong judgment concerning women. You know, we have bad cases, we have good cases. Of course, with the court as any other institution, we have to 
overthink of us. We have to, to examine what we are doing. That's very important. But the court was too busy with only the question of too many cases, too many cases. Instead of having a vision of the supranational control of the human rights. And that for me, that was a little bit frustrating. Just continuing with this thing about how to re-legitimize the courts. For instance, African states uh, have criticized it so much. Uh, and, you know, this has also been a clear backlash against, you know, we don't recognize anymore the authority of this court. For me, I think this is where I see also an added value of representation of diversity, not just of gender diversity, but not having enough minority judges so that people can own the institutions. And that's why I see an added value, you know, but um, on diversity. But I don't know what you think, you know, which would be the virtue that diversity could bring, you know, to increase the authority and legitimacy of courts. I think it's part of the problem. It's really part of the problem. Because when you are talking about legitimacy, legitimacy means that people they have a trust in the court. That's very important. And it's not to be a blind trust, not at all. It should be a vigilant trust. But this link now, where this, where the trust disappears? Why? Why, why, why? If the, the population is people, is people who are, have a feeling of alienation with the court, it's the end. Which kind of remedy can we find to that? Of course, we can say we are, judges are too far from the people. That's true. They are too far, but they do not understand the reality. Diversity in disrespect is for me an important remedy and very important. It should be a good vaccine against alienation. We have to do everything we can as judges. For me, it was very important what I was at the court. I tried to explain the convention of the court to anybody. People in Strasbourg, young people coming from a college, because my clinic lady asked me if I can receive at the court his son. He was 11 years old. And then he came with his class. Little, tiny, tiny uh, remedy that to discuss more and more and more about it. Because when we see people, people see you, the situation is coming different. You know, if you had to give an advice or a message to some you know, young woman aspiring to be judges today. But I am not a career counselor. <laughs> Do exactly what you, 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 you believe in it. That's for me the most important thing. Don't try to, to correspond to, to what uh, our expectation and you. Do exactly what you want. I was always a little bit marginal. So do exactly what you like. People accept, people do not accept. It's the same price. Continue, even if people are laughing at you, but we, of course. But don't, don't expect uh, recognition and so on because that, you know, a lot of you are becoming crazy. And, and in terms of stimulating our, our listeners uh, after, this, after they switch this off, is there a, a book or a story or a poem or something you'd like to just pass on to the listeners? No, no, I'm more inclined to music. Oh, there are so many pieces of music of inspiration now. Okay, it's so important in my life, music, yes, yes, oh, there are many pieces. Now with the Queen Elizabeth competition in Brussels, so you have the opportunity to listen every evening to, to beautiful concerto. The second concerto, perhaps, oh, great. Oh, I love I love music. I, because I didn't have enough time when I was uh, adult to, to, to study piano, so I... Join a choir. You know, it's so nice. 
then you are only a small alto in a group of 80 people. I, I love that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Women in International Justice. Don't forget to subscribe and stay tuned for more conversations with outstanding women who are rethinking representation in the international bench. If you'd like to hear more about diversity in the international judiciary system, go to graduateinstitute.ch forward slash diversity intl bench or follow the link in the show notes below and follow the lecture series on diversity and international justice organized by the Albert Hirschman Center for Democracy.